Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Do you think the federal liberal NDP partnership will be good for Canada? Hamilton shifting from mandates to guidance when it comes to COVID-19 public health measures. How are Hamilton businesses handling the mask mandate change? We get the latest from Ukraine and discuss why Russia continues to shell civilian targets. Cardiologists in Ontario giving a thumbs down to a new deal between the OMA and the Ministry of Health. And do you know which two teams played in the first Stanley Cup final? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. People are not coming out of this pandemic with any great sense of joy. There's a lot of trepidation. Uh, And when we take a look at what's replacing the pandemic as the most important issue in the province, it's actually the first time I've seen it in probably almost 40 years housing is at the top of the list. Ipsos CEO Daryl Bricker on the latest poll for Global News, which suggests that if a provincial election was held today, Premier Doug Ford and his PC party would be re-elected to power. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you as we wake up this morning. We have some new news to report, and that is a new deal between the federal liberals and the NDP that would keep the grits in power until 2025. And let's start with that with our next guest here on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim Wright is a principal and founder of Wright Strategies and joins us now on GMH. Good morning, Kim. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for joining us once again. Uh, Before we dive into this poll, I do want to ask you about this, what seems to be a massive deal in Ottawa that would see the Liberal government remain in power until 2025 with the backing of the NDP on confidence votes. Your thoughts upon hearing of this news? Well, I'm waiting to see what the actual deal is, but if if rumors are to be true, uh, and oftentimes in politics they are, uh, they are deals on things like housing, like pharmacare, and dental care, things that Canadians have overwhelmingly said they want uh, the government of Canada to get to work on. They've sent now three, uh, another minority government, they've said parliamentarians, Stop being uh, egotistical temper tantrum children and actually get to work for Canadians. So here we are. Uh, The new Democrats have decided, all right, let's get to work and let's move on things that matter. The Prime Minister and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh scheduled to speak later on this morning. The devil will certainly be in the details for sure. How do you think they're going to position this so-called confidence and supply agreement? Yeah, it is certainly not a formal coalition or an accord where you're going to see NDP members in, in cabinet. I, that is uh, not my understanding of where of where we're at on this. But it is on where the government wants to move on items that matter to Canadians. They will have the support of the New Democrats and on confidence motions. Uh, they will have the support of New Democrats. Rick, the reality is we've seen these brinkmanship uh, politics of, oh, my gosh, we're going to go to another election as they're going to be, as the CPC likes to say, $600 million spent on unnecessary elections. So this has now taken that off the table. So perhaps without that electoral uh, proverbial gun to the head, maybe we'll actually get some things that matter, not just more press releases. That'd be nice for a change. Kim Wright is our guest, principal and founder of Wright Strategies. You are listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Speaking of the CPC, interim conservative leader Candace Bergen described the move as, quote, a little more than backdoor socialism. Is that sour grapes or does she have a bit of a point? Look, the the CPC has voted with the government hundreds of times to block things like uh, like pharmacare and dental care. Um, I'm not. I, I love you know phrases like back to our socialism. It works well in a press release or a tweet or maybe the name of a bar or a band. 
Uh, but I don't think that's where Canadians are looking to. And and Daryl Brooker and Ipsos's poll talking about things like housing and housing affordability. Those are the things that where Canadians are at. Again, these this temper tantrum politics don't really serve Canadians. That would be a pretty cool band name. Uh, to the <laughs> Ipsos poll, uh, this Ipsos poll conducted for Global News shows that if a provincial election were held today, Premier Doug Ford and his PC party would be re-elected to power. PCs with 38% support, the Liberals 28, NDP 24, Greens uh, middling at 4%. Your thoughts on those numbers and uh, a re-elected Ford government, perhaps? Well, look, I'm a big Blue Jays fan, and I always get really excited during spring training, but the rubber hits the road often uh, during the actual uh, season. So I'm holding my breath a bit about where these, where these polling numbers are, uh, are going to shake out. Uh, ultimately, we've seen in the last couple of elections that Andrea Horvath, the NDP leader, has run in. Her polling numbers during a campaign uh, spike astronomically, and then... People seem to have collective amnesia after uh, the campaigns are done. So we'll see when the actual campaign happens. As we've seen in federal, provincial, and even municipal campaigns, Rick, campaigns matter. So we'll see if they can actually hold, if the Doug Ford government can actually hold on to that polling numbers. Uh, that's where they were about in the last election. So we'll see if they can actually muster that through. Daryl Brooker from Ipsos mentioned housing. Is is anything but the pandemic going to be the, the, the main election issue? It really does come down to how people perceive the, the pandemic. Ultimately, people have said, wow, there actually is a role for government to play in housing, in long-term care, in healthcare writ large making sure that people have the the things that we sort of talk about wistfully as Canadians, we think we have, but the pandemic laid bare a number of the cracks in the system. So ultimately, people will be looking for who is going to lead them, what is going to be their priorities, how are they actually going to make life better for Ontarians. Um, The housing front is actually something that has been front and centre for people. During the pandemic, we were really struck by how many people had precarious housing and, and in fact ended up homeless um, and we you couldn't go for a walk in any community that uh, you didn't see people out on the street living on the street and what does that look like and why have we gotten there as a society so people want to see housing and also what we've also found has been that just finding a place to rent let alone affordably but at all in many communities is darn near impossible so people are looking for what has been the cause of that. Mostly that has been government red tape that has not built new housing and political gamesmanship around how big or how far we go to build housing. But there is a big affordability question, and that's going to factor into the campaign substantially. So we should suspect Mr. Del Duca and uh, Mrs. Orvath to concentrate on that big factor? Well, I think you're going to see them talk about affordability and how government can be a factor for good in people's lives. And I think that's what you're going to see a lot of during the during the campaign, where Doug Ford uh, will more position as government should get out of the way of everyday Ontarians. And we'll see that, you know, the license plate thing was just the, the uh, renewal of stickers. So, yeah, that, that saved individuals 120 bucks, 200 bucks every time they went to renew their sticker. But what they'll not tell you, Rick, is that it took a billion dollars out of the Treasury. And talking to some friends of mine who have had to pay for childcare, they'd rather pay the 120 bucks than pay the $30,000 a year they have to pay for childcare. Those are the decisions Ontarians are going to face. You mentioned you were a Blue Jays fan. Are they a playoff team this year or what? 
Oh, I hope so. I'm pretty <laughs> excited. As I say, I'm excited most seasons, but I think where they ended off last season uh, is a pretty good indicator of where they uh, they may end up uh, starting this season. And the addition of Mark Chapman, I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, it should be a fun season. Kim, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Kim Wright, principal and founder, Wright Strategies. And uh, uh, yeah, some, some good things to say about this uh, non-coalition, it's not a coalition, this, uh, what they're calling a confidence in supply agreement between the federal liberals and the NDP, and analyzing some of the numbers from this latest Ipsos poll that shows if an election were held today in Ontario, Doug Ford's PC party would uh, remain in power. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I think it's been a good step over the last month to really see everything open back up. I think that has been great. I think that was absolutely necessary to go forward. I think the removing of mask mandates was maybe a step a little bit too early. That is the voice of Niagara Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Mustafa Hirji, on this program yesterday, saying that the province may have jumped the gun a little too quickly by lifting the mask mandates. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, meantime, Hamilton Public Health encouraging residents to be patients with one another as our uh, COVID-related public health measures are shifting from mandates to guidance. Here to dive into that is Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, Hamilton's Medical Officer of Health. Dr. Richardson, welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rick. Do you agree with Dr. Hirji that the province may have moved a little too quickly with its mask mandate? You know, when we're looking at this piece about masks and when to lift them and just how to move forward in living and managing with uh, COVID-19, there's certainly going to be some people who feel it's a little too early, that we could have waited another week or two perhaps to uh, to move forward with the uh, the changes in the mask mandate, others feel that it's it's really quite too late, and that we could have moved further, uh, moved sooner, um, if you will. And you know, when we look around the uh, the country, look um, at what's going on. We do see that uh, across the country, those mandates are being dropped. We're more in the middle to later end of that, and uh, in areas that have similar case numbers and those sorts of things. So, I think we could look at it and say, you know, could it have been a week or two later? Could it have been a week or two earlier? Um, the main thing is that case numbers are well down, our hospitalizations are well down, our ICU numbers are well down. You know, COVID-19 is here. It's going to be here for a long time. It's not going away. And so we have to figure out how we're going to move forward, how we're going to live with and manage COVID-19. And so it's reasonable, I think, to take this step at this point in time. So as the Medical Officer of Health, you're you're okay with what the province has decided? Yeah, I'm okay with it, Rick. I think we have to make a make a move. I think, um, you know, to have done it this week, next week, the week after, it would be um, somewhat similar in terms of what we're seeing, at least here locally. And, you know, there's no doubt we're going to stay on the alert. We're going to be looking at this along with uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, the Chief Medical Officer for the province, and all of our colleagues around the province looking out to see what happens as we move forward. Very pleased to see as we've moved forward so far with the reopening that's going on that we've not really seen a resurgence. You know, our our modeling that we had done had predicted we would see somewhat of a resurgence, and we didn't see that. And so we're very pleased with that. And I think that speaks to the fact that people are continuing to make wise choices. They're continuing to be thoughtful about what they're doing. And that's what we need ultimately going forward, for people to look at the situation, look at what their circumstances are, and make wise decisions. Use all the tools that we have in the toolkit, the masks, the distancing, you know, all of the things we have around vaccination. Those are all so important as we go forward. And so uh, making uh, that move now is reasonable for me. 
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, Medical Officer of Health with the City of Hamilton. Uh, I was bombing around the city yesterday, went to a few stores and noticed about a 50-50, maybe 60-40 split for those who were still wearing masks as opposed to those who were not wearing masks. Totally unscientific on my part. Uh, What did you notice yesterday? You know, Rick, I did the same thing last evening after work. I went out to see how things were going and and found pretty much the same thing, about a 50-50 split in terms of, of what people are doing, which I think is great, um, that people are still using their masks. And uh, remembering, too, that there are some uh, circumstances in which they're absolutely required still. So they're still required in transit. They're still required in high-risk settings like long-term care homes, healthcare settings, um, shelters, all those sorts of settings are still requiring them. And they're still required for people who are returning from travel outside of uh, Canada for two weeks after that travel period, as well as four cases and contacts um, once they're able to be out in the community. So, you know, we never know um, why somebody is wearing a mask, whether it is because it's required for them or whether they have a health condition or they're living with people who have health conditions that put them at higher risk or they just feel more comfortable doing it. And that's where that, you know, respect and and um, room for everybody to make the decision that they need to make is really important as we go forward. And so supporting each other to do that is so important. Absolutely. Uh, COVID forecast presented to the city's Board of Health yesterday suggest some level of swell, but the virus is now circulating in the community at a manageable level. What does the swell look like? So we've modeled a couple of different things, our, uh, our team that does that work, and looked at, you know, if we, if we look at how much people might stop wearing masks or how much they might maintain wearing masks and all those sorts of things, what we might see as we go forward. And so we do see that, that no matter what we do, we're going to continue to have a level of COVID-19 in our community. And, you know, after the Omicron wave, it is going to continue to be higher than what we had before the Omicron wave. And so that is going to continue whether we, um, you know, to whatever extent we continue to wear our masks. Now, if we wear our masks more and we make sure those vaccination rates continue to go up, um, the number of cases will stay uh, down at a manageable rate and they'll still be manageable if we don't, but they'll be slightly higher. They'll be, you know, um, it's hard to, I'm trying to think of how to quantify it. The case numbers, because we do know that they're an underestimate, they may be, you know, double the cases that we would have if we didn't otherwise the total cases. In terms of the uh, hospitalizations and ICU numbers, though, those tend to be as well slightly higher, but, um, you know, very much still in the manageable range, similar with the ICU numbers in terms of those. Of course, we now have at our disposal not only all those preventive measures that we talked about, but also things like treatment that can be used for people who may indeed end up in hospital. And so very much encouraging people, if they are feeling unwell, if they do, you know, have underlying medical conditions, if they're immunosuppressed for any reason because of treatment or because of some other illness they have, to speak with your family physician and talk about what's right for you. As always, Dr. Richardson, really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much, Rick. That is Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, Medical Officer of Health, City of Hamilton, uh, telling us about the latest, greatest in the COVID-19 battle in town as the mask mandates are dropped. And, well, so far, so good. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If we were to continue on with the bylaw, uh, the folks would be, uh, you know, giving everybody out there that's running a business or an operation, including the City of Hamilton, 
you know, particularly hard time, if not an impossible time. That is the voice of Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger after City Council officially lifted the city's masking and physically distancing bylaw yesterday. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Well, now that Ontario's mask mandate has indeed come to an end, how are Hamilton businesses handling this change? Paul Shakowicz is the Policy and Government Relations Advisor with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and joins us now on Good Morning. Hamilton. Good morning, Paul. Hello. Good morning, Rick. What's the general mood among local business people now that the mask mandate has been lifted? Yes, of course. That's definitely the question of the day and the week. I'm sure you've seen the the variety of media coverage that is already out there on this subject and consistent, of course, with the decision that City Council made yesterday to proceed with the provincial directive, you know, here at the Hamilton Chamber and among our membership. It's uh, it's definitely a positive day. As you know, the Chamber has really remained a partner to business throughout the pandemic, uh, serving our members with timely updates and guidance on responding to public health measures, helping them apply for those government support programs, and of course, providing access to those free rapid antigen test kits for Hamilton area businesses, which has been a huge lifeline for them in terms of protecting their operations as well as the safety of their employees. Chamber continues to believe that good public health policy is good economic policy. We've consistently supported the directives as delivered by the province of Ontario and the chief medical officer of health. Well, it's definitely going to be a bit weird at first and we encourage people to take it slow. Take things at your own pace. In terms of what we're hearing from our businesses and our members, generally it's positive, but there are still some reservations, of course. But that's not to say that businesses are still not prioritizing the health and safety of their patrons and staff. You know, the overwhelming majority of businesses and our members over the past two years have consistently followed the rules and responded to restrictions and mandates as they've come up. On many times, it'd be on very last-minute circumstances as well, overnight or over the weekend. And you know what? They've continued to serve their community in safe ways and are committed to continuing to do so. Consistently, you know, businesses in Hamilton have acted in line with the Chief Medical Officer of Health orders, and those businesses that are still requiring them are within their right to do so uh, as per their responsibilities under applicable labor laws to protect the health and safety of their employees. No one here by uh, yesterday's change in guidance is saying that the pandemic is over. So these measures do work and continue to be utilized as necessary. But I think what we can really take away is that this is news and evidence that the sacrifices and adherence to science and good public health guidance we have made are nothing to laugh at, and we've made significant accomplishments as a collective. And sort of it's a, a day to pause and look back on how far we've come and how much we really have learned in the last two years. Uh, virtually all COVID restrictions have now been relaxed, uh, not only in the city, but province-wide. At the same time, though, we still have these supply chain issues. Uh, you know, inflation is rising, gas prices are up, interest rates going up, all pressures on consumers. Uh, it looks like the, or it sounds like the pandemic pivoting is morphing into a new tap dance for businesses. How are businesses coping with all this? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And and will uh, this single-handedly, you know, save the economy or boost it, the changing of these restrictions? I mean, I think there's going to be a positive benefit from it, for sure, that in terms of bottom lines for many. But there, as we all know, there are a number of challenging, contributing, interrelated matters affecting our economy and sort of local affordability right now. But I think what we can focus on is that this is an improvement from where we were and really a continuation of the public health efforts that we've collectively made over the last two years. It has been consistently iterative in terms of the guidance and the rules coming down. And now based on our success and progress as a province, um, we can really move forward with that next iterative step, which is that step towards removing masks on a voluntary 
basis. And you know, it's encouraging. Let's see what these impacts are. And again, reminding people, take it slow, go at your own pace, do what is right for you while you're in the community supporting these local businesses that have, you know, consistently gone above and beyond the last two years because they really do care about this community and being a part of what Hamilton makes Hamilton. We have a couple more minutes with Paul Shacklewitz. He is the Policy and Government Relations Advisor at the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, we know that some businesses in town have decided to continue using the vaccine passport system. Do you have any info on how those businesses are doing? Yeah, from from what we've heard from our members who are still doing it, you know, they're not getting any sort of pushback or negativity at the door. And I think a part of it is really being proactive about their communications. Um, businesses now increasingly are doing their operations online. And, you know, the Hamilton Chamber has run the now, or sorry, the Digital Main Street program in conjunction with the city for the past few years that was really helping businesses with their online presence. And so, from the work of that, more businesses are online than ever. It's easy to find the information before going anywhere in terms of what public health requirements they are utilizing. But I think um, in terms of switching from the voluntary basis from the requisite one, it does make things a little bit easier for some of our businesses that they aren't anymore increasingly less finding themselves in that awkward spot where uh, maybe they have a conversation with someone with differing, differing perspectives on the pandemic at the door about restrictions that must be in place. But we need to really recognize and thank the contributions and the sacrifices that, you know, our local small businesses have made over the past few years by, you know, policing the situation to protect the health and well-being of our community on top of really scraping by with limited access to revenue sources has been challenging. So I think the move from the mandatory to the voluntary has been generally positive and, and re-empowering again for patrons as well as businesses in terms of what public health measures uh, you know, need to be enforced consistent with the guidance being brought down by the province. Great to hear that more and more local businesses are finding some serious traction as we get into better days this spring and summer for sure. Paul, appreciate the time today. Yes, of course. Have a great day. You too. That's Paul Shacklewitz. He is the Policy and Government Relations Advisor with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Russia continues to shell civilian targets in Ukraine, including a shopping center in Kiev a day or so ago that left several people dead. Alistair Edgar is our next guest. He's an associate professor of political science at Wilfrid Laurier University, the author of several books, including The Changing Role of the United Nations in Managing Armed Conflict. And he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Alistair. Good morning, Rick. What is Russia doing? I mean, their actions are absolutely despicable, and to me, they reek of desperation. Yeah, their their initial goal, um, it, you know, the, the lightning strike into Ukraine with paratroopers and toppler government and put in a puppet regime, uh, failed miserably, as everybody knows. Um, so they had to revert straight after that to using their conscript army, the, the, the one they'd massed on the borders, um, and those are, they're poorly equipped, poorly trained, completely confused conscripts who don't want to be there and don't know why they're there. Um, and as a result, uh, not making much progress on the ground. And so they've had to resort to, you know, shelling in um, urban areas. So, so as you mentioned, just striking civilian targets to try to put pressure on the Zelensky government to surrender. How much of Russia's uh, miscalculation goes down to how underwhelming they thought maybe the Ukrainian military forces were? Yeah, I think 
I think I think the Russians are very surprised, and in some ways, I think everybody else is pleasantly surprised on on, on everybody else's side. Um, although you know, Western forces, NATO forces, um, Canadian forces, others have been training the Ukrainians for some time. I think I think it was more how bad the Russian forces are is what has surprised a lot of people. Um, you know, good good Ukrainian forces could be overwhelmed ten or fifteen to one. Uh, by a numerically superior good Russian military, but the Russian military has, at least the one they've used so far, has shown itself to be completely incompetent. It almost appears as uh, so Vladimir Putin and uh, the Russian military thought that this would be an Afghanistan situation. We saw the U.S. and the Allied forces leave Afghanistan. The Taliban quickly took over at lightning speed. And I think many had the impression, at least those in, in the Kremlin, thought we can do the same in Ukraine. Yeah, I, in fact, I think they had, I think they had two two Afghanistans in mind. You know, in 1979 they did send in paratroopers and others, and they took over the palace and they put in their own government. So they they thought they could do the same thing in Ukraine, and then perhaps they thought that the West would not have an appetite or a capacity to to support Ukraine, and they were badly wrong on both counts. Alistair Edgar is our guest, Associate Professor of Political Science at Wilfrid Laurier University. We're talking about the latest in Ukraine as Russian military forces continue to target civilian targets. Um, We heard uh, sometime early yesterday that uh, Ukrainian military personnel refused to surrender Mariupol, one of the southern um, uh, areas of this battle where where fierce battling has been uh, taking place. Is that just another sign of the resiliency of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, the the, the Russians are, are getting themselves bogged down into urban warfare, and and no army, uh, a good one or a poor one, uh, wants to get involved in doing that. And of course, you know, a huge difference that people have spoken about um, morale. You know, we've known, gosh, since the Second World War, um, bombarding civilian targets does not break the morale of the city of the citizens there. It often makes it even uh, stronger. And in Ukraine's case, that's certainly the, you know, what's happening. They, they, they demanded, Russia demanded the surrender of Mariupol and the, the mayor of Mariupol told them to, to put it somewhere where the sun doesn't shine. Basically, <laughs> told them, no, we're not going to do that. Um, now, they're also doing that for strategic reasons. They want to tie the Russians down into Mariupol, literally doing block by block urban warfare. Uh, and that's what's happening right now. It does mean that city is being completely destroyed, though. As the battle on the battleground continues, as the sanctions continue to um, really uh, pound the Russian people, how much longer do you think Putin is going to go through with this military operation, as they call it? Mm-hmm. Um, well, kind of like um, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, Putin doesn't care about the impact of the sanctions on his people. Um, the sanctions may be having... Um, impacts on his capacity to pay for the war uh, and certainly um, on his capacity to get uh, parts for his military as things are being shot down or destroyed. But he he, he will continue fighting this uh, until he can get either complete victory on the ground, which does not look like it's going to happen anytime soon or at all, uh, or he tries to get the kind of a ceasefire agreement from Zelensky that he wants, which will be neutrality for Ukraine 
and possibly uh, try to get a new government in place. Last one for you, and we have uh, just about a minute to get to this, uh, the NATO summit on Thursday. Um, what do we expect to come out of that? Uh, I think NATO committing to uh, maintaining its commitment to re-equip and resupply the Ukrainian forces uh, and to make sure that you, um, NATO forces in NATO member states on Russia's border uh, are well supported so that Russia knows it should not put a toe across a border into a NATO member state. Should be interesting to watch uh, come Thursday. Alistair, really appreciate the time today. Uh, happy to chat to you, Rick. Alistair Edgar is an associate professor, political science, Wilfrid Laurier University, author of several books, including The Changing Role of the United Nations in Managing Armed Conflict. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting story developing here in this province, and it has to do with virtual care. Cardiologists in this province Uh, giving a thumbs down to a new deal between the Ministry of Health and the Ontario Medical Association that many say is going to hurt patients. Uh, Dr. Shankar Pandey is our guest. He's an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University and a member of the OAC Board of Directors. Dr. Pandey, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on the, uh, the radio today. Yeah, thanks for coming on today. So what should the public know about this proposed physician services agreement? So this is an important agreement that has taken a few years for the Ontario Medical Association to put together uh, with the Ministry of Health. And I think there are some very good things in it. The opposition that that, uh, that the Ontario Cardiologist Association has is that it does severely restrict and impact the provision of virtual care. And as you all know, you know, during this pandemic that we've all gone through, so much of healthcare has had to turn to virtual care. Patients are seeing their patient, their their doctors remotely by phone. Um, access to limit exposure to infections and keep people, everyone, very healthy. So, you know, one of the few, very few good things that have come out of the COVID pandemic is that healthcare has embraced virtual resources and has been able to really expand the services that we can offer. And what that means is that, you know, uh, my ability, for example, as a cardiologist to provide care to patients that are remote, that are rural, that are disadvantaged, the extremely poor or, you know, the extreme elderly um, that might be shut-ins, you know, I can reach them in their location, in their home, provide care, provide consultation, make sure that they're receiving services that they require. In the past, those same people would have had to travel many hours and wait in my waiting room for you know two, three hours before I could assess them. And now with the provision of care, all of us have learned as healthcare providers how to deliver these services, provide consultations, provide care uh, in a remote manner. And what this agreement does is really severely restrict that. Um, they'll still allow for consultations in person, obviously, but also by video call, which is great if you're you know, living in an urban center, you have access to high-speed internet, you have the resources to have the technology to you know, log on and do video conferencing. But for many of my patients that are in their 70s and 80s and 90s, those are not options. They can't access those services. They're not comfortable on the computer. They don't have access to computers. And, you know, I see patients that come from very remote parts of Ontario 
where high-speed internet is not even accessible. And so those patients, again, would have very restricted care. And, you know, through the pandemic, I've been able to provide them with support and care in their own homes and reach them where they need to be reached. And so, what we as Ontario cardiologists are pushing for is that those resources that we've spent a lot of time and effort in the last two, three years to build shouldn't be taken away from our most vulnerable patients, from the elderly, from the poor, from remote rural patients. Does this agreement mean that a consultation by telephone is going to be off the table? And if so, does that mean that telehealth is going to be scrapped? Telehealth is not being scrapped, but consultation, the first consultation by telephone uh, will not be allowed. What that means is that, you know, again, patients have to either have access to those, those high-speed internet resources that many lack, or they have to physically drive down to their specialist office and be waiting for hours to, to be seen, whereas a lot of those services could be provided through phone and have been effectively provided for the last two and a half years by phone consultation and phone support. The, the other part that, that you know, I, I would emphasize, for me personally, this is a very personal issue. I have, you know, parents that are in their 80s, and my grandfather, my uh, my father-in-law is in his 90s, and they may have very advanced, uh, you know, illnesses that require frequent follow-up, and the specialists are only in downtown Toronto. Historically, I'd have to cancel my office, disadvantage a whole bunch of my patients, drive down with them to be able to 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 be there to to take notes and to you know, guide, uh, you know, the care. And now, over these last two and a half years. You know, I've been able to, to conference in when the specialist is speaking to them, write down notes, answer any questions they have. You know, my, my parents or my you know, father-in-law doesn't miss his appointment because I can't get out of the office in time. And so, you know, it's, it's a much more convenient and effective way to deliver care. Now, there are some things that require in-person care. And I think that's the balance we have to achieve is that if a patient needs to be examined, they need to be seen in person, they have to be seen in person. If they want to be seen in person, doctors have to provide that service in person. So I think it's that balance that we're trying to, to emphasize that we can achieve in the healthcare system where we can make it convenient for the disadvantaged, the elderly and rural patients to access specialty services, but at the same time, make sure that if they need to be seen in person, they can be seen in person. Dr. Pandy, we'll have to leave it there as we're plumb out of time. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for your time. Dr. Shaker Pandey is an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University, also a member of the OAC Board of Directors. Ontario doctors are going to be voting on this proposed physician services agreement all week long. The results should be known uh, sometime next week. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is the most recognizable championship trophy in all of sports. Yes, the Stanley Cup. Today, players from 32 teams are competing to have their names inscribed on hockey's holy grail, but that wasn't always the case, and it especially holds true during hockey's infancy. What a tremendous hockey game this was. Fantastic. 
That, uh, remarkably, was 55 years ago uh, when the Leafs last won the Stanley Cup. But on this day, March 22nd, 1894, that's 128 years ago, the first Stanley Cup championship game was played. Yeah, the Cup was won that year by the Montreal Hockey Club, thanks to a 3-1 victory over the Ottawa Hockey Club in the Amateur Hockey Association of Canada final. And Montreal was awarded the Stanley Cup unchallenged in 1893, a year after it was commissioned as the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup. Uh, The cup is named after Lord Stanley of Preston, Canada's Governor General of the time, who donated it as an award to the nation's best amateur hockey outfit. Professional teams became eligible to challenge for Lord Stanley's trophy in 1906, and in 1915, the National Hockey Association and Pacific Coast Hockey Association agree that the best teams in each league would battle for the cup. By 1927, the National Hockey League was the only one competing for the Stanley Cup, won that season by the Ottawa Senators. The Montreal Canadiens have made the most appearances in the Stanley Cup final with 35 and have won the most championships with 24, 11 more than the Maple Leafs. And now you know. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.